Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. This week we're veering slightly northward on our cross-country tour, to the state of Oklahoma, more specifically to Beaver Dunes Park in the Oklahoma Panhandle, the skinny northwestern section of the state. Beaver Dunes is a popular place for outdoor activities like hiking, fishing, camping, and off-roading, but there are much stranger happenings in the park that have earned it the nickname Oklahoma's Bermuda Triangle. It's a reputation that took seed long before the invention of the ATV even before someone decided roughing it outdoors was something we should do for fun rather than just survival. In the mid-1500s, Spanish conquistador Francisco Vasquez de Coronado traveled north from Mexico into what's now the southern United States. His mission? Locate the fabled Seven Cities of Cibola, rumored to house unimaginable riches of silver and gold the usual things that motivated Spanish imperialism. After breaking off from the larger expedition in northern Texas, Coronado led a group of 36 up into the Oklahoma panhandle. Traveling through the dry, sandy hills of the area that's now Beaver Dunes was slow going, both for the men and the horses carrying them. But there was a sense of urgency and discomfort in the Native American guides that led them which seemed to worsen as the sun began to drift toward the horizon. The guides weren't keen on spending the night in the dunes, and as the company slowed and Coronado gave the order to search out a suitable place to make camp for the night, the guides' nervousness was palpable. It was not a place you wanted to stay in, they said, especially after dark. There were dangers there. Supernatural dangers that couldn't be kept at bay with lances or swords. It was better, 
safer, they urged, to walk through the night. But you don't get to be a famed conquistador by caving to local superstition. Brushing their fears aside, Coronado commanded his men to make camp. Darkness was descending quickly, and the men hurried to unpack, feed and water their horses, light cooking fires, and prepare the evening meal. Despite animated warnings from the guides, men were also sent off to scout the dunes surrounding the camp and hunt for wild game. As the stars came out, Coronado and his men began to settle in, talking and joking, sharing food and drinks around the fire, when there was a sudden, ear-splitting clap of thunder accompanying a blinding flash of green lightning that forked down onto one of the dunes. A dune where three of Coronado's hunters had just been standing. Shaking off surprise, others quickly rushed over to see what had happened. But when they reached the dune, they stopped in their tracks. There was nothing, no sign of the men, save their footprints in the sand. The entire event was recorded in Coronado's journal, an entry he later tried to cover up upon returning to Mexico. Coronado's men weren't the last to vanish either. There have been numerous reports of people who have vanished with no trace in Beaver Dunes up until 1987. Victims of what's become known as Shaman's Portal, which some claim to be a gateway to an alternate dimension. But disappearances aren't the only strange happenings to be recorded in Beaver Dunes. Visitors to the park have also reported strange instances of military-looking people digging late at night in the dunes. Pair that with the other stories of bright flashes and green light, and you've got yourself a heck of a UFO conspiracy in the making. But let's leave unearthing mysteries in the desert to the guys in black. Time to dig up a story of our own. We have one longer story for you this evening that comes to us from Krista Carmen. Krista's work has been featured in myriad anthologies, e-zines, and podcasts, including Fireside Fiction Company, Unnerving Magazine, Comet Press's Year's Best Hardcore Horror, Outpost 28, Lycan Valley Press's Dark Voices, Third Flatiron's Strange Beasties, Horror Hill of the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights's Simply Scary Podcast Network, and Tales to Terrify. Her debut collection, Something Borrowed, Something Blood-Soaked, is available now from Unnerving, and won the Indie Horror Book Award for Best Debut Collection. You can find her online at kristacarmen.com. Children of the Night, join me for Krista Carmen's The Rest Will Be in Pieces, originally published in August 2018. I spent my life in a place where winter lingers like an ancient curse, and neighbors sense one another's secrets, the way migratory birds intuit the passage south. 
so when I reached an impasse for which no earthly solution could be applied, I knew what to do. I wish that I hadn't grown up hearing stories of the witch of Coy Wolf Woods, or that I wasn't aware, upon rushing from my home, down the front steps, and into that gray and snowy afternoon, exactly how to seek the witch's counsel. Maybe then, things would have turned out differently. Maybe then, I wouldn't have lost my daughter. Coy Wolf Woods wasn't listed on any map, at least not on any map I'd ever seen. But the stories had it located deep in the wilderness of upstate New York, north of the Black River. I remembered my grandmother's sonorous voice, telling me a tale that, even then, had seemed to include strangely serviceable instructions. Once upon a time there was a girl, and this girl wanted more than anything to ask a favor of a witch. So she walked northeast along the river until the sun was no longer visible over Squaw Bonnet Rise. She followed the parallel copses of evergreens until she came to where the river dropped seventy feet over a nice cliff. Here, Black River was joined by Moose River from the east, just above the eponymous waterfall. A stone's throw ahead, the mouth of a cave materialized between the root systems of twin-felled oaks. The girl approached the cave and sat. She did not speak, for her grandmother had told her that the witch of Coy Wolf Woods would know she was there. When the witch indeed emerged, she invited the girl to present her request. In exchange for what the girl desired, the witch demanded something in return. I'm certain that the next part of the story marched forth into traditional deal-with-the-devil cautionary fare. But the details are lost to me all these years later. A more dutiful granddaughter would have internalized the story's intrinsic warning. A smarter woman would have remembered the risks of bargaining with black magic. Instead, I relished in my near-perfect recollection of the directives for finding the witch with all the enthusiasm and imprudence of a treasure hunter on the high seas. The only sound in a wilderness muted by an ever-thickening blanket of snow was the crunching of my boots against the icy earth. Occasionally, I thought I heard rustling in the trees, and I had the distinct sensation of being watched— but when I whipped my head around to catch sight of one of the coyote-wolf hybrids the woods were named for, there was never anything there. The path defined for me by generations of legends was not going to give up its secrets that easily. Or so it seemed. I anticipated the journey would be a long one, but when I'd walked for several hours and came across neither the passageway of evergreens nor the crag of feldspar, quartz, and hornblende strata. I wondered if I should have been less impulsive in my departure. My stomach growled with equal parts hunger and indignation, aware that food would be non-existent for the foreseeable future. My feet smarted in dampening boots, then numbed, and the wind whipped against my face, stinging my cheeks 
and causing my eyes to water. If there were coy wolves stalking me, tracking my progress through the trees, I'd be too preoccupied with my mounting ailments to detect them. I thought of turning back only in moments when the cold drove away the self-righteous anger that burned in the pit of my stomach. And then I'd remembered my husband's accusations, his pleas, his rationalizations with no regard for my own, and I clenched my teeth, set my jaw against the wind, and aimed my steps for those areas of forest floor shielded from a degree of winter's wrath by the hardier thickets of vegetation. One such heated reflection caused me to miss the moment the sun dipped below squaw bonnet rise. When I realized I was no longer squinting against crystalline snow reflecting light like diamonds, I halted as abruptly as a cartoon cat and backtracked until the first glint over squaw bonnet reappeared. There, to my left, as symmetric and evenly spaced as if the seedlings had been laid by human hands, a passage of massive, verdant evergreens, balsam fir and black spruce, eastern hemlock and northern white cedar, weaved alongside the Black River until I could no longer follow its trajectory. Remembering the good witch Glinda's advice to Dorothy, I placed the toe of one boot at the exact spot where deep snow gave way to pine needles only lightly dusted and, conscious of the growing darkness, started down the path. The trees stretched toward the sky, like a parade of giantesses. Focusing on the elegant sway of their branches allowed me to refrain from acknowledging each passing minute. I heard the waterfall before I saw it, the place where it pummeled into the river, like water boiling for a fairy's pot of tea. I'm here, I thought. The cave door must be right ahead. And looking up, burying the worry that there'd be no fallen oaks, no witch's lair, that I'd come all this way for nothing, I saw adjacent sets of roots, too large to belong to anything in the known Pinophyta division. Careful not to make a sound, I crept forward the last several feet. Before I could so much as locate a rock on which to sit, the rotten, dirt-choked roots began to tremble. I ended up sitting anyway, falling to the forest floor in my surprise, gaze glued to the space between the roots, both awestruck and terrified of what I was about to behold. A hand, white as bone, fingers like long dead twigs, emerged to wave away the last of the skeletal flora. The thin, ethereal arm that followed was trimmed by a sleeve of thick gray fur. I recalled the porcelain dolls that had adorned the dressers of my youth, their faces as fresh in my mind as those of family members. For the dolls were the subjects of the first still-life paintings I'd ever created. The figure that stepped into the clearing was no porcelain doll. She was beautiful. That I could not deny. But her beauty was a terrible thing. Her eyes were deep pools of water to drown in. Her steps against the ground were shifting tectonic plates. The words that poured from her lips 
molten lava surging across the lower altitudes, smothering all within its path. Beatrix Anna Castile, daughter of Sophia Marie Castile, and of the forest through which you have walked, tell me why you have come. Both the long gray coat and the luxurious stole draped across her shoulders were the thick, pristine fur of the coy wolves she undoubtedly cohabited with. My words felt too small to utter to the devastating creature before me. She took another step forward, and my gaze flicked to the cave from which she had come. Her hand shot up with frightening speed, and the roots moved into place again, blocking my view of her lair and framing the witch in woodland tentacles. I waited to be rebuffed for my near insubordination, but the witch's face softened, and this time when she spoke, her voice did not rattle the teeth within my skull. Do not fear me, daughter Beatrix, and have faith in your words. I know yours is the language of imagery and light, color and contrast. My eyes widened at her intimate knowledge of this detail of my life. I have found the witch of Coy Wolf Woods, and she is worthy of her title. Before I could stammer out a response, she continued, Address me by name, my daughter, and tell me why you have come. I know you only as the witch of Coy Wolf Woods, the witch did not cackle. She boomed with laughter. I would come to understand that there were few things she did that kept with my, albeit limited, knowledge of witches. It is true that I am the witch of Coy Wolf Woods. My hybrids grow stronger with each passing season, and the individual species from which they were forged will soon exist in New York State no more. This is a lesson, lest folks forget, that all seemingly static things can be made to exist beyond the boundaries of their preordained fate. I nodded vigorously, keen to appear agreeable. As for my name, I am Amber Aura, and I have lived in these woods since the river first seeped like a tear from the fairy queen's eye, and the fairy king stood taller than the tallest sapling. Now, address me by name, my daughter, and tell me why you have come. Buoyed by this newly imparted knowledge, I said, Amber Aura, I have come to ask for your advice. My husband wishes to have a child, yet all I see, should I choose to appease him, is a life in opposition to the one I've worked so hard to build. A life without substance or beauty, without creativity, without art. My stomach clenched at how I knew the words must sound, but I pressed on. I... I'm an artist, painting and pottery, textiles and clay. I fear that my identity will be 
washed away should I have a child, like a stone made smooth by the rush of the waterfall. Amber Aura nodded, thoughtful. Is there anything else? Daughter Beatrix. I felt I had explained my need for her counsel adequately enough, yet something in the witch's eyes incited me to go further. I've spent many sleepless nights since that exchange in Coy Wolf Woods, agonizing over this decision. If I had refused to say more, kept my cards closer to the vest, would the witch have looked up to the sky, saw my path written between the twinkling stars, and conveyed my way forward without toil or trouble? Had this been the case, I'd be regaling you with a very different tale. As it were, I saw Amber Aura's desire for me to continue as clearly as any painting I have rendered. I opened my mouth, and all my desperation tumbled forth. With each question I asked the witch, I dug another shovel full of dirt from the hole that was to be my grave. What will happen if I have a child? Will I be able to balance motherhood with my art? What happens if I no longer care about my work? If I sacrifice every moment of future happiness for another? One who might struggle in life and love, might stumble and falter and fail, and come to wish they'd never been born? My body trembled like a bow in a storm. I am torn, I said softly making fists of my hands to quell the shaking. Too paralyzed with fear to make a move one way or the other. Then I spoke the words that were the sound of my shovel hitting bottom. I wish I could see the future. Amber Aura practically thrummed with thinly veiled excitement. She paced between the root systems, mumbling as she repeated portions of the questions I had posed, mulling over the myriad vulnerabilities my words had revealed. Beatrix Anna Castile wishes to see the future. She clucked her tongue and ran her elegant hands down the length of her cloak. While I do not possess a crystal ball, in my own way, I can give her what she seeks. I can ensure her future is as I intend it to be. You can? I... That's amazing, but... I was nervous anew. What future will you construct? You long to strengthen your relationship with your husband, to experience the gift of motherhood, and yet to give up none of yourself. Not your talent or ambition, nor motivation, determination, work ethic, style, or anything else that makes you the artist that you are. I can allow for these goals to be achieved simultaneously. I opened my mouth to thank her, but she held up a hand. For a price. Of course, I said quickly feeling foolish for not anticipating this sooner. I was negotiating with a witch. Of course there was going to be a price. Name it, 
I finished lamely. What I am offering is invaluable. The solution to a problem that has plagued women through the annals of history the world over. It is the promise of harmony and infinite happiness, absolute peace, balance, contentment, at the level of the soul. Amber Aura ran her long-fingered hands a second time over the coy wolf pelt, upsetting the generous dusting of snow. Such a gift requires of its recipient a tremendous sacrifice. Are you prepared to make that sacrifice? I am, but the thought that followed was, I have no idea if that is true. What I want from you is your hand. My hand? I was dumbfounded. But without my hand, how can I... I understand just what giving up your hand and your dominant one at that, which is what I require, would cost you. You would have to trust that your sacrifice would bring with it the ability to use your non-dominant hand to create art that is as skilled and as meaningful to you as it ever was. The work will be different, of course. It will change, perhaps in ways that are imperceptive, perhaps radically. But if you trust in me and accept my offer, I can promise you that you will not regret your choice, not ever. Do you understand? I nodded once, then sensing she desired a verbal response, squeaked out, Yes. All right, then. You understand. Do you accept? A thousand reasons not to accept accosted me. But in the end, I said the answer that had been inexorable from the moment I'd run from my house, the directions from my grandmother's story on my lips. I do. Then, present the hand that you create with, the hand that now belongs to me. I held up my right hand, stifling a sob. From behind each set of roots stepped an enormous koi wolf. Their shoulders reached Amber Aura's hips. The animal on her left tossed its massive head, and I gasped and stumbled backward. Locals have disseminated legends of a cunning witch who presides over miles of wilderness. From Hadi Randa and the Little Moose Mountain to West Canada Lake and the Siamese Ponds. For over a century... With your sacrifice, my familiars will roam these woods with a renewed taste for human flesh, and the legends will persist for a century more. Amber Aura knelt so that her mouth was level with their large, tufted ears. I could not make out the words she whispered, but in an instant, the beasts were on me. The first koi wolf knocked me back and pinned my shoulders to the ground, forcing snow up over the collar of my coat, the cold of it shocking, even in my terror. 
The second hybrid took my hand into its mouth. I felt its teeth massage the fine bones, felt its hot, pulsing tongue against my palm. The pain when it bit down was unfathomable. A moment later, the pressure somehow intensified. Skin tore. Bones crumbled. My pain was a moon eclipsing the sun, and it threw my world into darkness and disorientation. When I opened my eyes, Amber Aura was leaning over me. She took my forearm up in her ghostly hands and lowered her lips to the wound. I stared, unblinking, expecting her to heal me with her magic, to lift the pain from the curve of my ruined wrist and the contours of my fractured mind with her serpent sigh. Neither mercy was delivered. At the touch of her mouth to the ragged flesh, the bleeding did slow. Death while attempting to extricate myself from Koi Wolf Woods was now a likelihood, rather than an inevitability. Still breathless from the pain, I let my head fall to one side. The snow beneath my feverish cheek melted instantly. My vision cleared, and I realized that the scene before me was that of the Koi Wolves ripping the flesh from my severed hand, gnawing bones that only moments ago, had been safe beneath my skin. I lifted my face to the callous, dead-gazed stars. Amber Aura's hands pressed against my abdomen. Her chanting filled the woods. I drifted in and out of consciousness several times before the incantation ceased. Amber Aura positioned her arms around my back, and I felt the coarseness of the koi wolf pelt against my skin. She helped me to my feet, and I swayed on legs so weak a rowboat cresting the falls would have been sturdier. Unable to combat the nausea that assailed me, I turned and retched a stream of bile into the shadowy snow. It is done, Amperora intoned. The seed of the child whom you will love unconditionally who will cement your marriage, and yet who will never pull you from your passion, has been planted. The way home is long, but you will make it there. Once you do, the next great chapter of your life will begin. Now, go. She pushed me toward the sound of rushing water, and I staggered forward. When I reeled back in the direction of her cave, Amber Aura was gone. The roots obscured any sign that she had ever been, but her loyal, watchful koi wolves remained. The sounds of their blood-stained noses sniffing the wintry air, their heavy bodies converting my flesh into energy with which to trot and howl and stalk and pounce— surrounded me until I came to believe they were the sounds of my own tired body, struggling to survive. The witch's familiars were tangible evidence of the sorcery I had sought out. Each time my mind grew foggy or my pace slowed, they were there, reminding me of deadly, stately Amberora and the bargain we had struck. They ran among the spruces and the hemlocks tirelessly, guiding me, herding me home.
I thought of that night, often, during the pregnancy. Of returning home to Rich. Of his angry voice coming to me deep inside of our house. Of his anger dissolving into horror when he found me in the foyer. Wound pressed to my side. Lips forming soundless supplications. Eyes roving like I was still navigating miles of wilderness by constellation. At the hospital, the doctor's questions went unanswered. I had not spoken since entering into Amber Aura's contract hours before. It was clear I'd been the victim of some sort of animal attack, but they wheeled me into surgery with no real sense of what had befallen me in Coy Wolf Woods. I was turning over my heavily bandaged hand, wondering in that vague, dreamy sort of way that comes with post-operative narcotics what the scar would look like once it healed, when a baby-faced doctor with a thick head of red hair hurried into the room. They'd done blood work prior to surgery, and I watched Rich's face carefully, curious to see how he'd take the news. Pregnant, he said, as if the words would secrete poison into his mouth if spoken too fast. Then, more confidently, Pregnant? My God! I placed my hands, both the physical and the phantom one, atop my belly, and smiled. As my recovery progressed, Rich and I became more like the couple we'd been when we'd fallen in love nine years earlier. In the first few days after coming home from the hospital, he wanted nothing more than to sit by my bedside, discussing names for the baby and reading aloud from the mix of Get Well Soon and congratulations cards he'd brought in from the mailbox the afternoon before. When I faltered, one-handed, with spooning sugar into my tea, or balancing a book on my lap, he'd look off into the distance, determined that his observation not be mistaken for pity. Flashbacks and half-formed images from that night came to me as often as swollen feet and peculiar cravings. The cave and the coy wolves, the mirror image evergreens weaving through the snowy woods, eerie chanting on the air, echoes of the promises the witch woman whispered in my ear. Sometimes, I tried to attribute those recollections to hormones or an overactive imagination. I only had to reach for something with my non-existent hand for this belief to dissipate, like the mournful wail of a wolf on the wind. Tea-stirring and page-turning were nothing compared to the day my daughter was born. Any obstacle I could imagine my disability posing became irrelevant when viewed through the lens of my fierce desire to love and protect her. Her birth was the moment I stopped thinking of my missing hand as a disability at all. Balancing the baby while maneuvering my breast to her tiny, perfect mouth, changing diapers, soothing her in the night. None of these blessings could be cause for concern. That didn't mean that at night, contented but jittery with fatigue, I wasn't consumed by fear that the witch's prophecy would fail to come true. The first foretelling, that I would love the child, whom we named Ashra, and who would cement my marriage, had undoubtedly come to pass. But my missing hand was slow to heal, and so whether or not Ashra would divert me from my passion 
remained to be seen. Two months passed, and the stairs to my attic studio grew dusty, the air in the alcove stale. Sometimes, often in the blackest part of night, after I'd fed Ashra and sat, rocking in my grandmother's rocker, coaxing the baby back to sleep, I entertained the possibility that not only would Amber Aura's promise never come to fruition, but that I'd already held my last paintbrush, thrown my last pot of clay. In those moments, strangled with anxiety, Ashra's hot, milky breath against my shoulder, juggling a career and motherhood, never seemed so out of reach. I had convinced myself that the witch's only motivation in striking a deal with me was to torment my soul, to strain my sanity. The stairs to my studio had become insurmountable. Until they weren't. On the eve of Ashra's six-month birthday, Rich decided he'd missed a sufficient number of work events and set out to meet another lawyer for dinner with a prospective client. I wandered around the quiet house with the baby on my shoulder, the sun behind the curtains giving way, first to the purplish bruise of dusk, then to full dark. Ashra's coos yielding to the soft, gurgling inhalations that meant she was asleep. I laid her in her crib, my mind vacillating between an image of the book beside my bed and a recipe for the homemade baby food I'd been meaning to tinker with. I found my hand on the door to my studio, before realizing I had traveled there. As I climbed the stairs, I held my residual limb out several inches for balance, a coping mechanism I'd adopted as unconsciously as two dozen others. I'd like to be able to relay what happened that first night back behind my easel. Art critics and journalists, my agent, innumerable gallery directors, and even Rich, all asked at one point or another. But I recalled nothing of creating the piece that would signify my re-emergence into and domination over the New York art scene for years to come. My agent titled it, The Woman in the Woods. But... She was no woman I'd painted. The moon was shaded so that its craters formed the image of a developing fetus and reflected palely off the oil-sheened fur of the beasts flanking the witch of Coywolf Woods. From the fourth finger of the severed hand cradled between the larger of the Coywolf's jaws, an oval onyx ring glittered. Though I wasn't wearing a ring the night I lost my hand, I bought myself an exquisite one with the money the painting brought in. My husband never minded when I swapped my wedding ring out for it. I only had the single ring finger on which to wear a piece of jewelry. Rich was delighted I was painting again, and that Andrew had secured me an exhibition, but I could tell the work unnerved him. Of course, the gallery show didn't come about after a single piece— no matter how haunting the woman in the woods was. I could hardly keep myself stocked in materials for how fast I was depleting them. Almost weekly, I finished another painting, sketch, mosaic, sculpture, tapestry, or mixed-media piece. Almost weekly, my collection of work inspired by the witch and her familiars grew. 
Rich had called my agent during this frenzy of activity himself. Andrew came by a few nights later and sucked in such a sharp intake of air at the body of work I'd produced. I couldn't help but experience a rush of pride. I ran paint-stained fingers through my snarled hair, residual limb bent at a ninety-degree angle across my stomach. Like Amber Aura promised, I thought. I made do with one. Good Christ, Beatrix, this is unbelievable, Andrew exclaimed. When Rich called to tell me the speed with which you were working, I had no idea that the quality would be so masterful and, Christ, so commercially viable. He turned his attention to Ashra, asleep in Rich's arms. How on earth did you manage this? I reached for Ash, and Rich transferred her to me in the careful, practiced way we had. Ashra is the best little sleeper a new mother could ask for. She never fusses. It's uncanny. It really is, Rich said. The look on his face said he was still working out his feelings regarding this phenomenon. Her monthly checkups have been perfect. She's developing at a slightly above average rate. But she never cries. And you could set your watch by her nap schedule. Oftentimes, we only realize she's awake when B has finished whatever she's working on and goes to check on her. The pediatrician said it's rare to have an infant engage in self-soothing behavior so effectively, but not completely unusual. She said that we were lucky. Rich caught my gaze and held it. B is lucky. Remarkable, Andrew said. His eyes were as big as an owl's. You are lucky, Beatrix. Extraordinarily so. I've seen... Well, I don't have to tell you how many artists' careers derailed by having a child. It's unfortunate, but true. Artists' careers? I asked, with pointed interest. Or women's? A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
I could tell you all the parts between the beginning and the end. But what good would that do, really? Would it matter if I told you that Ashra became my world? Each day, she was the cause of a thousand smiles before breakfast, and a thousand more between lunch and dinner. I loved her with an intensity I never thought possible, with an acceptance beyond that of which I could have previously conceived. Would it matter if I told you that her sweet nature and kind heart were vibrant enough to neutralize the sun? She was the kind of child who insisted her father stop the car so she could help a too-slow turtle cross the road, and in third grade, started a table in the lunchroom at which every child was welcome. And would it matter if I told you that despite my boundless, violent love, the other love of my life, my art, never suffered, never even faltered? The year Ash turned ten, and tended to a secret garden of my favorite herbs on her bedroom windowsill to present me for Mother's Day— That was the year I finalized a piece that now hangs in the Met. At thirteen, Ash broke her wrist, and I found myself in the position of aiding my daughter in the art of single-hand survival. Rich's presence was required on a business trip that spanned the first week of Ashra's recovery, and I kept her out of school, two good hands between us, in order to bake cookies and build forts, read stories to one another, and play cards. I felt the already solid relationship we had thicken beyond compare. The following week, Cornell University bought a series of my sculptures to be displayed across the Ithaca campus. For all her love of spending time in my studio, perched atop the window seat, crafting her own little projects, Ashra's creativity manifested itself in other ways. She dabbled in ballet, tap dancing, Jazz, gymnastics, piano and singing lessons, cheerleading, violin, and guitar. She enjoyed painting and pottery, but not as much as she enjoyed watching me paint or throw. She could oversee my work on a piece for hours, smiling when I told her that each new artistic endeavor was like a newborn baby, requiring me to nurture it from conception to adulthood. One night, as I toiled over a painting the New York City mayor had commissioned of me, Ashra appeared like a ghost by my side and asked in a soft voice, How did you lose your hand? This wasn't the first time, of course. She'd been a curious child and realized quickly that her mother was different from most everyone she saw. The answer I repeated now was the same answer I'd told her then. The same answer I'd given everyone over the years. I'd gotten lost in the woods and was attacked by two of the coyote-wolf hybrids fabled to roam the Herkimer and Hamilton County's wilderness. She held my gaze until I was certain she could see the lie for what it was. I shifted uncomfortably on my stool. You've always been at peace with it, she said, her amber eyes still probing. Why? I fought to keep my composure. I lost my hand on the same night I found out I was pregnant with you. This I'd never told her before, and the surprise was evident on her face. Having you, 
I continued, made losing my hand not matter so much. What were you doing in the woods? I guess you could say I was looking for answers. What kind of answers? I smiled. You know, how to lead one's best life and the other insignificant quandaries such as this? Did you find them? I believe I did. I lost my hand, which might lead one to believe that I was then faced with the biggest question of all. How would I raise a child and continue to make art? I leaned forward and ruffled her hair, troubled by the somber turn the conversation had taken. I think I've done all right with both, however. Wouldn't you say? Ashra smiled, but the expression was hesitant. All right, enough, even. For a hot chocolate break? I asked, further attempting to change the subject. This proposal had the desired effect, and she plucked the paintbrush from behind my ear and tapped me on the nose with its bristled end. Sure, Mom, she agreed. By the time Ashra was sixteen, she'd shed all the pastimes of her youth save one, though her violin playing could hardly have been called a pastime. Four months shy of her eighteenth birthday, Ash's acceptance letter to the Juilliard School arrived. I'm not sure whose exclamation of shock and delight was louder, riches or mine, but both of us were proud to the point of bursting. The night before we were to travel to Manhattan to move Ash into her dorm, we held one another after making love, sharing our excitement in our daughter's future, our elation for the life we believed she would lead. She's going to do amazing things, I said both at Juilliard and beyond. I'd like to think we did a good job as parents, but I'm not sure we had anything to do with it. Ash would have been remarkable, no matter what. Rich reached out and tucked a strand of hair behind my right ear. With that being said, he continued, would you have done anything differently? A jolt of anxiety shot through my veins. No, I said, with more force than I'd intended. I looked my husband straight into the eye. Not a single thing. We left Friday for the city, and Ashra's birthday fell on Saturday, a day spent lofting her bed and stocking her dorm room with every manner of freshman commodity we could devise. Rich and I planned to stay until Sunday evening. Ashra's orientation would be Monday. Is there anything special you'd like to do in the city for your birthday? I asked. Her answer was the last one I was expecting. Visit the Met as a family and walk through my latest exhibit together. Are you sure, Ash? It's your birthday, and the last time your father and I will see you until Thanksgiving. She insisted that nothing would make her happier. We ate dinner at a little Italian restaurant where Rich enlisted the server to punctuate the meal with a candle-laden tiramisu. I watched my husband and a chorus of dapper young men sing happy birthday to my daughter through a film of bliss-induced tears. On the walk over to the Met, Ashra positioned herself to my left, 
as she always did when she wanted to take my hand, flushed from the red wine I'd drunk at dinner, contented by the feel of Ashra's violin-hardened hand in mine. I wondered if it was possible for life to be any more perfect. The museum was quiet even before we arrived at Exhibition Gallery 199, where the view through the forest was currently on display. Ash and Rich had both seen pieces of the exhibit when it had been a work in progress, but the view was pegged by the Met's curator as a fully immersive, stunningly original visual experience, and I could tell from the wonderment that suffused their features that the whole was greater than the sum of its parts. I should mention that I'd completed hundreds of pieces over the last 18 years that had nothing to do with Amber Aura, the Koi Wolves, or her woods. This last piece, however, my swan song in so many ways, was a marked return to the place where it all began. The view through the forest was a thirty-foot expanse of evergreens that formed a path through a greater copse of maple, elm, and oak trees. I'd fashioned hundreds of silk-embroidered leaves and wire needles, six-foot-tall clay trunks with branches that stretched every which way, and affixed every leaf and needle via a painstaking combination of textile work and hot glue gunning. I did this forty-eight times, creating forty-eight gorgeously realistic trees over the course of three years. When the path of evergreens was finally assembled, for the first time in this very room, for the winding passageway of trees was far too large to erect in my studio, and was therefore purchased by the Met sight unseen, it created the effect that you were meandering through the deepest part of Koi Wolf Woods. In fact, I'd asked that a sound machine be positioned at the end of the exhibit, allowing patrons to experience the sensation of walking toward the rush of Black River Falls. At the entrance to the gallery, the assistant curator of American paintings and sculpture left us with the following. I've seen to it that while you're viewing the exhibit, Mrs. Castile, no other visitors will be permitted inside. Please, take your time. When she'd gone, Ashra took my hand again. On my right, Rich wrapped an arm around my waist. How strange, I thought, to walk through Koi Wolf Woods with the protection of my loving family. Together, we stepped into the forest. Ashra stopped after we'd gone but a few feet, lifting her eyes to the ceiling, where a tiled expanse of stars and a recreation of the literal pregnant moon from the woman in the woods glittered down at us. Your mural, Ashra said. I hadn't realized you'd incorporated it within the exhibit. She squeezed my hand, and I felt the resulting pressure around the chambers of my heart. It's beautiful. A thank you was on my lips, but... It would have been too substantial, too weighed down by every unexpressed moment of gratitude amassed over the last eighteen years. I said nothing, only smiled and squeezed her hand back. We started forward again through the path of trees, which shifted and rustled as if they were alive. How I wish we'd never made it to the end.
In my dreams, we are inside the forest of my own creation still, picnicking among the silken leaves and clay. Those dreams are heartbreaking in their detail. My daughter's face, lovely beneath the starlight. My husband's laughter, echoing off the trees, filling up our heads and hearts. Ignorant of what was to come, I pulled my family along too quickly, hungry for their admiration, eating up their praise. Three minutes later, in the muted light of the gallery, we stepped from between the final two trees. When we did, Amber Aura was there, waiting. The curators made the connection between the woman in the woods and the view through the forest, I thought. They've constructed her likeness out of wax and fur and paint. There's no other explanation. Amber Aura held out one thin, pale arm, and my delusion shattered. Well, 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 she said coolly. The daughter looks as if the mother painted her own likeness into existence. Alas, both Beatrix and I know this is not the case. Rich, sensing me stiffen at his side, stepped forward. Listen, lady, this exhibit is closed for the evening. If it's an autograph you want, wait downstairs, and maybe my wife will give you one on our way out. Amber Aura smiled horribly. There is something I desire from your wife, but an autograph is not it. I wonder, though, how well she signs her name with her left hand. The leaves from the last two trees brushed against my arms as I trembled. Mom, Ashra said, and I felt my heart cleave. Amber Aura turned toward my daughter. I have waited eighteen years to claim you from the woman at your side, and now, Ashra Castile, Mom is precisely what you call me. What is the goddamn meaning of this? Rich, believing the frightfully tall woman before him to be insane, stepped around me to take Ashra's arm. But Amber Aura was quicker. She pulled Ashra toward her in one smooth movement, twirling my daughter's body beneath her arm and wrapping one end of the first stole around Ashra's shoulders. Ashra was too bewildered to cry out, but her eyes found mine, and the pleading there was almost more than I could stand. I understand your anger, Amber Aura said to Rich. Allow me to explain. Eighteen years and nine months ago, your wife wandered into the wilderness, seeking the witch of Coy Wolf Woods. She succeeded where the legend said she would, and laid bare the reasons why she had come. Those reasons now are not important. What is important is that Beatrix and the witch struck a deal. In exchange for her right hand, which would go to the witch's Coy Wolves, Beatrix would be granted a child, and the guarantee that neither her commitment to her art nor her skill, despite surrendering her dominant hand, would suffer because of it. 
Amber Aura paused to run her bone-white fingers along the length of the coy wolf fur and rose to her full height. I am that witch, she boomed, and it is I with whom she struck this deal. The trees around me blurred, but I was able to see Rich's face flush with rage before my vision shrunk to a dark and narrow tunnel, Amberora and my terrified daughter at its center. Even if the ludicrous things you say are true, Rich barked, and my wife struck a deal with a crazy woman calling herself a witch, why are you here? Why are you threatening us? My wife has spent the last 18 years with only one hand, and if she did have it torn from her body by one of your mutant beasts, that, to me, would seem a fair trade for her success and for our darling daughter. Oh, it would have been, Amber Aura growled. If she'd given me the correct hand. Rich turned to look at me with slowly dawning horror. I lowered my eyes, sending silent tears cascading down my face. Is this true? At Ashra's tremulous inquiry, the magnitude of what I'd done hit me like a thousand tons of water flowing over Black River Falls. I felt Rich's accusatory glare and Amberora's triumph in equal measure. I opened my mouth, faltered, closed it again. And then I did the thing I regret, perhaps, more than anything else, more than lying to or seeking out Amber Aura in the first place. I said nothing. My daughter deserved, at the very least, for me to answer for my sins. And I couldn't even do that. I couldn't face the deceitfulness of my actions even when everything was falling to pieces around me. Even when it was all over. Amber Aura took a step back. I thought of taking the hand I was originally owed as well. But that will not be necessary. The future is such that you will never pick up a paintbrush again, Beatrix. Hunting for your daughter will consume you for the rest of your life. And with that, Amber Aura pulled the fur stole around Ashra so that no hint of Ash's perfect face or frame was visible. Rich lurched forward with a shout, but it was no use. Quicker than a falling star, Amber Aura disappeared, taking my daughter with her. For minutes after their departure, Rich ran around the exhibit like a madman, knocking over clay trunks, tearing leaves from trees in his frantic search for Ashra. The curator arrived with a pair of security guards who quickly called the police. An APB was issued for a woman in a long fur coat, trafficking an 18-year-old girl with amber eyes and dark brown hair. Their surveillance cameras had shorted out all over the museum, a detailed visual on the kidnapper, was never acquired. Through all the questions and the chaos, I simply stood there. I did not move. I did not cry. 
The shock that enveloped me was the kind from which there is no escape. And why should there be? How could I mourn or express one iota of grief when the only one I had to blame was myself? The second prophecy issued by Amberora came true, but then I never doubted that it would. All that she'd predicted that night in Coy Wolf Woods came to pass, and had I refrained from my act of deception, I imagined that part of the prophecy would have transpired too. I remembered the thought that I had almost two decades earlier. I have found the witch of Coy Wolf Woods, and she is worthy of her title. That I believed I could outsmart her was my greatest crime and a lifetime full of them. I have not seen Rich since a few weeks after that night in the museum. He is content to let me go off on my ill-fated mission, having no reason to believe we'll ever see our daughter again. We sold the house as part of our divorce proceedings, but not before I'd packed up every last paintbrush and palette, feeding it all to the river on my way to Coywolf Woods. I expected some of the supplies to sail away with the current, but everything sank, the tannic acid that gives the river its name, obscuring even the most colorful glazes and polymers in an instant. Though I rarely see them, the coy wolf stalk me from the shadows. I suspect that when she grows tired of my dogged pursuit, Amber Aura will command them to finish what they started. Until then... I walk northeast along the river until the sun is no longer visible over Squaw Bonnet Rise. I follow the parallel copses of evergreens until I come to where the river drops seventy feet over a nice cliff. Here, Black River is joined by Moose River from the east, just above the eponymous waterfall. A stone's throw ahead, a cave opening once yawned between the root systems of twin-filled oaks— I walk past the scene of my original sin, my grandmother's instructions useless to me now. From this point forward, I am on my own. Sometimes I hear her, faint as the whir of a pottery wheel or silken leaves rustling beneath a star-filled mosaic sky. But my daughter's voice is only an echo, a phantom limb aching in the night, I know that I will never find her. And the part of me that knows this longs to hear the crunch of ligament and vertebrae as the coy wolf's jaws close around my throat. But I will search for her as long as I have breath within my body. I will pursue her the way I pursued the art I let consume me, the art that always meant too much. The bargain I'd struck with Amber Aura was never a thing of balance. By virtue of the mad terms I had accepted, I was never intended to have it all. Was always destined for misery. It is winter again, and the nights in the Coy Wolf Woods are bitterly cold. One evening, I came across the lifeless body of a female Coy Wolf, a fallen foe of Amber Aura's alphas, lying in a bed of freshly fallen snow. Without thinking twice, I skinned the animal 
and donned its fur, a sacrilegious imitation of the wicked witch herself. The coy wolf pelt helps against the worst of the long and sleepless nights, but the coarse gray fur is incidental. What fans the fire burning within me is anger, self-hatred, pity, and regret, and the ceaseless, searing need to find myself a witch. That was Krista Carmen's The Rest Will Be in Pieces, as read by Heather Thomas. Heather Thomas is a jewelry expert by day and master of none by night, dabbling in costuming, art, music, writing, and narration. She is a lifelong fan of all things horror and enjoys reading stories and novels to her friends and family, when they let her. She lives in Denver, Colorado, with her husband and her spoiled rotten cat, Oni. Thank you, Heather. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. Consider supporting our podcast on Patreon, via the link in the show notes. And like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts, so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and myself, Drew Sebastini. Theme music by Diane Severson, and website by Josh Leitze. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we invade your mind with more Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.